You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everybody. Peter Maravellis here on behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers and the City Lights Foundation. I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the virtual dimension of our events calendar. Tonight's event is being brought to you in conjunction with the California Film Institute. It is a nonprofit organization based in San Rafael, California, celebrating and promoting film as art and education. We are especially excited tonight as the book we are celebrating is one of our own. As many of you probably know, City Lights is a publisher as well as a bookstore. We have over 200 books in print. We are thrilled to be celebrating the launch of the publication of Lady Director, Adventures in Hollywood, Television and Beyond. It is authored by the award-winning director, Joyce Chopra. In this very engaging and candid memoir, Ms. Chopra provides an intimate view of a career spanning six decades. Ahead of her time, she paved the way for future female filmmakers and remains a role model to this day. Joyce Chopra has produced and directed a wide range of award-winning films, ranging from the celebrated Smooth Talk, winner of the Grand Jury Prize for Best Dramatic Feature at the Sundance Film Festival, to the A&E thriller, The Lady in Question. She has received the American Film Festival Blue Ribbon and the Cine Golden Eagle Awards for her numerous documentaries that include That Our Children Will Not Die and Joyce at 34, which is in the permanent collection of the Museum of Modern Art. She makes her home in Charlottesville, Virginia. She's gonna be joined tonight in conversation by Elizabeth Weitzman, the author of Renegade Women in Film and TV, which chronicles the remarkable hidden history of Hollywood pioneers on screen and behind the scenes. She was a film critic for the New York Daily News from 2000 to 2015, having interviewed hundreds of actors and filmmakers and has contributed to several books on film and currently covers movies for The Wrap. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Interview, and Harper's Bazaar, amongst other publications. Before we begin, as is customary, before each event, I'd like to take this moment to remind everyone we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatish Ohlone peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We'd like to take this moment to acknowledge those who have come before us as stewards of the land and offer our respect. So without much more ado, please join us in welcoming Joyce Chopra and Elizabeth Weitzman. Welcome to City Lights Live and congratulations. Thank you so much, Peter. I'd like to second your lovely welcome to everyone and say my deepest congratulations to you, Joyce, on your absolutely incredible memoir. It is warm and open and moving and most of all necessary. You know, things are not always easy now, of course, but sometimes we forget or never even knew just how hard they once were. And the stories of so many pioneering women in film and television have been overlooked or erased. And I know that you didn't have the benefit of their examples or inspiration, which makes your book, among many other things, a true gift for all of us. Well, I wonder. May we start with you reading the beautiful prologue? I think we should just jump right in because it does such a great job of bringing us back to the place 
where your extraordinary career began. You know, I wrote it after I almost completed the book and I realized I didn't set the stage. You know, uh, other people wouldn't know how strange it was in a way when I started. Okay, I want to read prologue. When I was about 22 or so, I purchased a Bolex film camera and never once dared to use it. It just sat on a tripod in the corner of my room, staring at me reproachfully. Becoming a movie director had taken a firm grip on my imagination, but I had the vaguest idea how one managed to do that. There weren't any film schools that I knew of, and even more problematic, I couldn't picture myself in the director's role since I'd never seen a movie directed by a woman. Even the film history books that I collected to educate myself never mentioned a single one. It didn't strike me as odd. It was 1958, and that's the way the world was. I would have been astonished if anyone had told me that a French woman exactly my age, Alice Guy, was the first person to direct a one-minute movie with actors in 1896 in Paris, or that 20 years later, an American woman, Lois Weber, would become the first person to direct a feature-length film, uh, excuse me, for the newly formed Universal Studios in Hollywood. I would have been equally amazed to be told that yet another woman I never heard of, Dorothy Arsner, directed major films all through the 1930s, starring the likes of Catherine Hepburn and Joan Crawford. I think she done her own transition into the new world of talkies, along with the silent movie star Clara Bow. Miss Bow's fear of microphones was so intense that it prompted Arsner to invent the boom mic by attaching a microphone to a fishing pole that followed the actors around the set where she couldn't see it. But none of these accomplishments would be recognized until many years later when scholars began to uncover women's, to uncover women's roles in the early days of movie making. It's frustrating to think that I knew nothing of their work at a time when it would have helped me to feel less insane to think of such a career for myself. But even if I had known that other women had once been successful film directors, I would have been dismayed that their success didn't last. By the 1940s, when Hollywood became a very corporate world, not one woman could be found sitting in the director's chair, except the actress Ida Lupino, who survived by forming her own production company and hiring herself. Like Lupino, I too had started my own business, Club 47, a folk music venue in Harvard Square that drew a devoted audience from the day it opened. But once the club was up and running, I became restless and unable to stop myself from obsessing about making movies. I even started the weekly film series on the nights we were closed so I could see films I'd only read about. And then watch them a second time to take notes on how they were shot. In a way, these private viewings were harmful. The more I learned, the more convinced I became that I was deluding myself. How could I possibly think I could be part of such magic? I also doubted that I had the courage to leave my familiar world behind to venture into the great unknown. It took a year, but obsession finally won out. I gave my treasured Bolex to a friend who I hoped would actually use it and sold my share in the club to my partner. With $1,500 in my wallet and a backpack, I set out to find my way. Ta-da! <laughs> and that's... Kind of crazy when you think about it. But you told me the other day when we were talking before meeting here online on Zoom that books about this were women weren't written until the 1990s. Am I right? 
or even later. It's true. It's so crazy. It's, I feel like you really did set the scene there. I mean, there's so much that happened in your career, starting from that first camera that you didn't even use. And that that image is so indelible to me. I know your start was filled with challenges, including a trip to Paris that began with high hopes for your career and ended with one dispiriting experience after another. And it is honestly, I think, remarkable that you kept going in the face of so little support or opportunity for young women at the time. So I wonder if you could also read for us what happened when you returned from Paris to New York, when you were, I know you were only about 24 and hoping to somehow find a way to pursue your dreams of working in film. Well, that's what an obsession is. I think a lot of people have it about whatever they choose to do. You just can't get it out of your head. And I really did. I went to Paris because I had been there on a junior year, one of those. And, and it was there that I went to a place called the Cinémathèque Française. And they were showing movies by country or by director. And the people who were there were busy analyzing them. And, and they, they didn't say movies. They said film. And I'd never heard anybody refer to a movie as a film. So that's really where I, I think the seed was planted because of those wonderful conversations. And I was reading book, uh, there was a magazine called Cahiers de Cinema and there were critics, Truffaut, Godard. I hadn't, they hadn't made movies yet, but I was fascinated by all of that. So anyway, skipping way ahead, not way ahead, after the club, I was finally got tired of ordering supplies for the kitchen and dealing with dishwashers not showing up. And I said, I've got to go. I've just got to do it. So I went back to Paris to start with I had the names of a few producers and the first, well, within five minutes, one grabbed my breast, the second one grabbed my rear end. And I just couldn't believe this was happening, but it was normal. I mean, I didn't, it was just so much part of the fabric. So I went, finally left and I went to New York. And like a lot of people who do this, I had a long list, not a very long, a list of names, so to say, uh, where I might get jobs. And after trying to sleeping on a friend's couch, very, I think it's very typical the way these work, things work. And uh, on the bottom of my list was, a, I was sent to a place that was really a revolution. They were, they were in the mid, they were, they were part of a revolution in documentary filmmaking. They uh, invented the handheld camera style, which we now call cinema verite, where you see on every documentary, every television, every even dramatic show on television. People are always walking hurriedly down, down corridors discussing the latest case on Law and Order. Anyway, I wound up working for these people. They were just great. And they had just finished a film called Primary about the primary fight in Wisconsin. I'm talking about 1960 between John Kennedy and Hubert Humphrey, the senator. And uh, Kennedy loved the film and told them they could come and film his inauguration. Then it turned out the Secret Service said, no way are you gonna have people we don't know coming to the inauguration. So Penny Baker and company decided, well, I'm gonna read that part because I thought of that because it's election time and this is about Kennedy's inauguration. And I was there. A month later, later Kennedy, a month later after I got hired, 
Kennedy was elected president and the office buzz was that appreciative primity, he would grant special access to the Drew film team the day of his inauguration. Unsurprisingly, just a week before the event, that access was denied by the Secret Service. In a mad scramble, Penny Baker decided that the company would still film Inauguration Day and follow three different people instead. Senator Hubert Humphrey, Scotty Lanahan, who was the only child of F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda, and John Steinbeck, author of Rapes of Wrath. Senator Humphrey was assigned to Ricky Leacock, and to my astonishment, he asked me to be his what they called sound girl. I panicked since I'd never been on a film shoot and knew absolutely nothing about how to record sound. But Ricky assured me that an hour's lesson with the new portable Nagra tape recorder would more than do. All six of us arrived the day before the big event in fine January weather with our equipment and Time Magazine press passes pinned to our lapels. I was flying so high with excitement, I wouldn't have needed a plane to carry me there. Within hours, an unforeseen storm blanketed Washington, D.C. in snow, with eight inches falling by evening. As befitted a professional working girl, I was wearing a skirt, nylon stockings, and low heel pumps. Every pair of boots in the city had stole out, sold out instantly. But still running on pure adrenaline, I didn't feel the cold lapping at my bare legs as Ricky and I took our places in the press stand opposite where the grandees of both parties were seated to watch the parade of states go by. I had put a wireless mic on Senator Humphrey and was privy to every comment he and his wife Muriel made to each other. After a short while, Muriel, though bundled up to her chin and furs to keep out the chill, began to murmur complaints as the parade dragged on. Daddy, I'm so cold. Can we go home? To which the senator patiently replied, no, mommy, not until our state goes by. But Minnesota may be another hour away, she moaned. Joe Kennedy was seated not far off in the front row when his son, the president-elect, rode by in his open limousine. The proud papa stood up and let out a savage whoop with such unabashed exultation that I felt I was witnessing something not meant to be seen by strangers. Senator Hubert Humphrey, a further gentleman, in spite of his primary losses, said to no one in particular, my, oh my, Mr. and Mrs. Kennedy must be awfully proud of their boy today. It goes on with more stories about, we went to the, we snuck into one of the inaugural balls and had a wonderful time. And that was a very lovely beginning to my film career. Anyway. That was, an, I mean, I, I feel like just your descriptions were so cinematic, right? We could tell what you do for a living just from that. (laughs) Well, that entire chapter, as well as so many others in the book, is really a testament. By the time you got there, it's a testament to your persistence. But as I was reading the book, I did wonder if your professional path might have been easier if you'd had your own lady directors to look to for guidance or inspiration. So can you share with us how the idea for the book began and what kept you inspired as you were writing? Well, I think I mentioned in the book at the end that uh, I'm, I'm somebody who has to be busy making something. You know, I could be planting roses or whatever it is. I and I love making movies. And if I'm not making them, or again, on some, what I call a project, I get depressed. 
And my daughter, Sarah, knows that about me. And I finished a documentary, this is about three years, four, I don't know, three or four years ago. And I was lying on a couch in the living room and she said, oh, you're depressed. I'm, you know, I know you, you need something to do. Why don't you write a memoir? Don't be ridiculous. I'm not a writer in any way. I'm nothing to say. She said, yes, you do. And I said, out of the blue, which is now the first sentence of the book, not the prologue, my father was taking such long steps down Mermaid Avenue, I couldn't keep up. She said, well, that's a good line. Why don't you go and write that down? But I had no intentions writing a book. It just, I was enjoying just doing it. Uh, and I did it on and off. And suddenly, not suddenly, it took a while. I had close to a book. And so I sent it to a friend who's a writer and a memoirist on a roar. And Anna read it. She said, this is, you, you should get this published. And I said, Anna, that's ridiculous. She said, no, no, you should get this published. And I'm going to send it to one of my agents, to the Wiley Agency. And I said, okay. And she did. And the agent loved it. But it took her almost three years to find a publisher. Wow. Lots of praise. But it's probably standard. It's, but the answer was, it's not on our list of what we're promoting now. Which reminds me of when we when I first made a film called Joyce 34 in 71. It was a year in the life of giving birth and the conflict between mothering and trying to make movies. There were this is nice, there were no distributors for films about women because they didn't think there was a market for it. Not one. And so a group of us formed a cooperative, New Day Films. And of course, there was a huge market for it. It was just exploded in a market. So I think the people who looked at the book, I don't know. We'll see. So anyway, I'm very grateful to City Lights for seeing the potential of it. Yeah, and actually, I think since you've mentioned it, it's fair to say that Lady Director is not really your first memoir, right? Because you and Claudia Weil collaborated on that oh, gorgeous documentary. Yes, yes. Joyce at 34, that is a memoir. And it's one that, by the way, everyone should see. And I know happens to be, right, Joyce, on the Criterion channel as part of yeah. <clears throat> a full tribute to your career this month. Um, it's such a spectacular film and it's remarkable to me that there was no precedent for it actually you're right i think it's the first autobiographical documentary ever made uh it's in, it's in the museum of modern art because of that um i don't know again somebody suggested to me i was eight months pregnant and her friend said you should do a film about for yourself and your if, if your relationship with your mother changes after you become a parent. I said, Bobby, that was my friend's name. That's the same way. That's so narcissistic. Are you crazy? People don't make documentaries about unknown people. They're about famous politicians or scientists, Albert Schweitzer or either. And so then I thought, maybe I should do a film about my, not a relationship with my mother, although she's in the film, but with my husband. And it, the film grew from there. Yeah. One of my favorite, I, I love every, I think every minute of that film is beautiful and essential. But one of my favorite scenes is when all the women realize when you're, they're talking about, you know, the, their work and what they 
gave up or what their passions were. And they all just, they're talking over each other because they're so excited to finally have someone who will hear what they have to say. And I really, I think that's so extraordinary that you, you gave say that who the women were. Explain who the women were. Oh, well, remember. I'll let you do it. You were the filmmaker. <laughs> oh, well, I knew that my mother, my mother was a retired school teacher in Brooklyn. And I knew that she got together with the other ladies, not every month, but, you know, maybe every other month. And they would gossip and show pictures of their grandchildren. And I asked my mother if I thought and I could come to the lunch because I just, I just had a hunch about this. And I got there and they were chatting and eating. And then I said, can I ask you one question? And I turned to Claudia and I said, start filming. <laughs> I said, did you ever have any conflicts about being a working, working and a parent? And they exploded. They had been eating lunch for 25, 30 years in a lunchroom and never once discussed it. They couldn't stop talking. We filmed it and they kept talking after we stopped filming. It was very exciting to film that. Yeah, and it, it explosion is the perfect word for yeah, it. it. I mean, all of them just, it's like no one had ever asked them, yeah. you know? So then I have to ask you this, because of course your narrative work is also extraordinary. So do you, you know, you go back and forth between narrative and documentary filmmaking. And I am wondering, do you have a preference or does each give you something essential to your own creative inspiration? No, I don't have a preference, really. I mean, with, with I started in documentaries and I didn't make my first fiction film till I was in my later 40s. Uh, and you learn so much when you do documentary films. And now I, the last 10 years, I've returned to doing documentary films. Uh, it's just... I love working with a good script and with actors. It's very gratifying. And scene set designers, you know, on and on. You create a whole world. With a documentary, you don't create a world. But for me, I try to pick what to film in that world. So it's not as they just roam around with a camera with a subject, you know, and keep filming. Fred Wiseman does that much more. Well, that's what he does. Well, actually... I have been particularly struck as I've been going through your work again by the very thoughtful way that you've chosen each of your subjects. Do you see filmmaking as a form of activism as well as an artwork? The documentaries are definitely. I mean, the three, the most recent one was about a young girl, teenager, who has cerebral palsy. And that's a huge subject of, of people with who are uh, handicapped. And how she, she doesn't want to use the word, word inspiring. She hates it. She says, I'm not inspiring. I'm, I'm, I'm just a person who, you know, can't walk in a certain, you know, it, I have to learn a whole language about disability doing a film like that. Uh, I, I was in Nicaragua two or three years ago doing a film about climate change, they, the, Nicaragua and all those Central American countries are being, coffee crops are being devastated by a fungus because of climate change. It doesn't get cold enough to, to kill it. Uh, it's anyway, again, so yes, it's activism. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I think one could say that the narrative films that you've chosen also are a form 
of activism, right? You're, you're, you give voice to often to women, but to people who haven't perhaps had a voice or, or been focused mm -hmm. on enough, almost like the women in the documentaries that you make. Yes, but a lot, a lot of them, though, were films for television. I did all through 1990s that were what we call movie of the week. They used to be, uh, again, it seems like 100 years ago, but it's not. It's only 20 years ago that it stopped. But for decades, every what is it, every Sunday and Wednesday night, there was a movie of the week. And But I I was often hired to, to do a film about women, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Um, so no, I don't know about that. I'm not sure I agree with you. I wish I could say that all my films were activist films, but I don't think so. Fair it, enough. That's fair enough. Well, I am sure that we have some aspiring or new directors with us tonight, as well as writers and others in creative fields. So can we take advantage of this time with you to ask what might be the most important advice that you might give them for their own careers? Just keep doing it. Keep trying. You know, I don't have any other advice because my my life is so, so many accidents, and you know, people I've met, uh, things coming together and not coming together. But because I just kept going, I think I end the book that way. I had a hard time figuring out how how it ended, and I couldn't. I kept I have numerous endings. And I think I ended with just keep going. Uh, I, yeah. yeah. If you care that much, just keep trying and something will happen. That's beautiful. And you know, something that some people often ask me is for a list of essential films made by women. And of course, Smooth Talk is always on that list as is Claudia's oh. Girlfriends. Um, but of course, I think we'd all love to know if there are any particular films that you'd recommend adding to that list. Adding to, to a list of smooth talk? A list of essential films made by women, which smooth oh. talk certainly is one of them. Oh, you've got me there. My mind is, I can't recommend any to you right now because I'm not focused on it. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. If anything pops into, you know, your oh, mind as we're talking, let so us know. Women in so many wonderful movies. And I'll think of it as we're talking about other things. Okay. Well, one of the things that I love about the book is how honest it is. You know, there are deeply personal moments about your family and also some surprising revelations about some A-list names. Were there any stories that were particularly difficult to write and were there any that you maybe hesitated to include? Oh, definitely about my brother, uh, yeah. who was six years older than me, who was supposedly my protector, but he wasn't. And uh, I'm quite concerned. I, I wasn't sure whether to include it. And then I finally decided I had to because it so shaped me. And uh, he, so if you want to know what I'm talking about, read it, because I'm not going to talk about it here. That was hard. Uh, I wasn't sure whether to include this, the story about Diane Keaton as a producer of the film I did. And I've actually, what I would say is cleaned it up because she's a mighty powerful person. You know, um, 
thing, yeah, but I decided it was important to tell that story. I was less, con I'm less concerned about that than I am about my family. But that's what memoirs are. Yeah. I mean, family is the base. It starts with my family. Right. Yeah. In Coney Island, that's right. So yeah. I'm going to open up questions to the audience. So if anybody has anything to ask, just drop it right in the chat. But I do have one more question as people are writing. Um, one of the most, and we've just sort of talked about this a bit, but one of the most beautiful aspects of your memoir to me is the way that you have bookended it. You know, on the very first pages, we just heard you do, you name check Alice Guy Blaché and Lois Weber and Ida Lupino as if you want readers to know about the women who were really hidden from you as you began your career. And I won't share the ending because everyone should experience it for themselves. But I will say that, um, and you've hinted at it a little bit, but it did bring me to tears. And I am wondering what you most hope that people will take away from the book once they've read it. Ooh, what, what, I want to talk about the book in a different angle. What, what you, you talked about, I mentioned the Bolex film camera, which was, they still make them, I think. My book is also a history of how we made movies. I, I went through every editing stage of equipment and you know, finally using video. I, you know, I cut my movies now on my computer at home. But it's, it was such a journey. And it all took place from, I started in 1960, and I'm still making it, God, how many, 40, 50, 60 years later. I'm sorry, I've lost your question. I got, please. No, it's. I think that's exactly, that's exactly what I was wondering is sort of what you were hoping people to take from it. And you have given us a history of film, really, as well as your yeah. own history. Yeah, and it's a history of, in a way, one person's way of doing it and all the barriers. I, you know, I was always dodging and moving here and looking there. And sometimes I'd have a great producer like the man who, who lives in Marin, uh, Martin Rosen, who produced Smooth Talk, you know, who just made it happen. Uh, and some who were awful. I worked with Harvey Weinstein. I wasn't uh, subject to sexual predations, but he was such a bully. He's awful, awful person. Uh, yeah, I've had my share of strange people that I've worked with. And Sidney Pollack, too. Yes, that was another wonder. Yeah. 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 Well, I see. Sydney just wasn't used to having a woman around. And when I first directed episodic television in the early 2000s, my first job was with Law and Order Special Victims Unit. They were going into the fourth season, and they'd, I don't know how many they do per season. And of the, in those four seasons, they'd only had two women in earlier seasons directing, and they, what I heard was they're wanting. And I was never, quote, asked back. I was wanting. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and then the ironic thing is, not long after the Directors Guild, the union I belong to, uh, was hosting an event in New York at the Directors Guild building. And I was, and they, they asked me to be the representative, two other directors who directed hundreds of episodes, and I was the woman they paraded out. And I almost didn't go. And I was tempted to stand up and say, 
this is a charade. I, you know, you guys fire me. Why are you now? I'm here posing as the woman. Anyway, yeah, there are many ups and downs and strange events. But you were, I mean, you really were someone who kicked down those doors in film and in television. Could you tell us a little bit about maybe about your Sundance when you when you brought Smooth Talk to Sundance? What was that like? Well, I actually, we were there with another film script. We had two scripts. Tom, my husband, Tom Cole, a writer, and I had two scripts. And the other one was from a book by a writer, Maxine Hung Kingston, who lives in Berkeley. I believe uh, she wrote a book, The Woman Warrior, which Martin Rosen, who produced both talk, options, so Tom and I could work on it with him. And uh, so we sent, when Sundance announced they were going to have a June lab for first time documentary, you know, filmmakers, we sent Woman Warrior thinking that that would probably be accepted. And I was, Tom and I went for a month to try to learn how to. For me, how to direct a fiction film. And the trouble is, I didn't feel I, at that time, and you know, they were in their early stages, there weren't enough experienced directors there to, to be assigned to me. So I really learned much, a huge amount when I actually had a direct smooth talk. And I had a cameraman who was very uh, clear about helping me, how, how to set up shots. Where do you put the camera? That was the biggest dilemma going from documentary to film fiction, is how to stage a scene. And I love learning that. Well, it's quite remarkable that you were learning how to do this on a film that is now a classic. You know, nobody think, would ever have guessed that. Well, there have been some wonderful first-time films, too. You wonder how, how do they do it? Yeah. I That's had a true. great partner in the cameraman. I had a great partner in my production designer, David Wasco, who was pretty new at it. And then he went on to, to be the production designer for most of Quentin Tarantino's films and other, and the, uh, I can't remember. Anyway, we just got this great group together for some reason. I don't know how it happened. Oh, can I tell how I got Cash Lord? That uh, was my next question. Please do. Okay, that's my best story. Uh, the center of the script for Smooth Talk, it's based on a Joyce Carol Oates short story, is a 16-year-old is a girl who's looking for adventures, wants to grow in her own way. And she's always fighting with a mother, which is so predictable. And we couldn't find anybody to play this part. Every actress who auditioned for us just made her a little bitch. I know I shouldn't even use that word anymore. My daughter tells me I shouldn't use that word about women. I don't know if you're not a bitch. Anyway, two weeks before filming, we still hadn't cast the main part. And Martin Rosen, the producer, we were together in his production office in San Rafael. And he was talking to a, a friend who's a photographer on the movie sets. And he and he, he handed me the place. You've got to hear what she has to say. Because Nancy Ellison, who was living in Malibu, in Malibu Colony on the beach, she said, I know her. She's walking by my window now. And she spoke about the character in our movie as though she was a real person walking by her window. Who is 
who was walking by there when it said Bruce Stern's daughter? And she, she was so strange. So then I called Laura to set up an appointment. I was going to fly to LA to uh, audition her. And her and her answering machine, she was playing a James Taylor song, Handyman, which is part of our script. There's a scene in which the character is dancing to James Taylor's Handyman. Okay, this is pretty strange. Anyway, I go down and meet Laura, and we're going to, she drives me to the studio. And on her stick shift, she has a postcard of James Dean, exactly the one we, the production designer, already put up on the bedroom for the waiting for the actress to come and occupy it. It was so strange. Anyway, so between that, and of course, when she read, I fell in love instantly. She was great. And you stayed close over the years. I know you talk in the book about how often on sets, everyone's very close and then you go your separate ways, but you and Laura always stayed close. Laura came and stayed, stayed with us on various occasions. Yeah. That's very nice. We actually have a question here about another um, film, television film that you directed. What was it from Ellen Wagner? What was it like to direct Blonde, which of course has been in the news lately, the miniseries about Marilyn Monroe? And how do you feel it differs from this year's movie, Blonde? Ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> For, I, I wasn't going, okay. I, again, Joyce Carol Oates, who I based Swingstock's short story on, had written a novel called Blonde, and it's a fictional version of Marilyn Monroe's life and it's somewhat fantastical and I loved it and I had just finished reading it when a producer friend called me who produces television movies Robert Greenwald and he said I'm going to produce it as a mini series for CBS would you like to direct it oh my god would I um, and we tried to, it was my way, of, well, I didn't write it. Somebody else wrote it, a very fine writer. Uh, and I'd forgotten about it. Didn't, when it was on CBS, it got some decent reviews, but it was also panned by a lot of people, by a lot of writers, especially in the New York Times, which matters to me because I live on the East Coast. That's, my friends read that paper. Okay, and so now here we are 20 some odd years later, and out comes this version. I knew about this version. It's been this man had been trying to make it for ten years. The reviews were not good, and I just I said I don't want to see somebody else's version of a story I cared a lot about. And then when the publicist at City Lights, Stacy Lewis, said, uh, "Who was it? The Hollywood Reporter wants to interview you." Uh, and to compare the two, just the same question you asked me. And I said, I don't want to do that. I don't want to speak ill of another director. She will find a way to go around. So I finally watched the movie. And I've, I'll say here what I didn't say in that article. I thought it was boring because she is constantly, the Marilyn Monroe character is constantly not exactly sexually assaulted all the time, but sometimes but she cries and she cries and she cries and she cries and she cries for three hours. And I didn't, I didn't care for how he interpreted scenes, but I have a conclusion about all of this. I don't think anybody should do films about Marilyn Monroe. Everybody owns her and they don't want to see a version of her that's not theirs. Well, um, that's very so interesting, yeah. 
Yeah, I'm sorry I was ever part of it. Oh, really? Well, I think we shouldn't exploit her anymore. Yeah. And you well, know, your, but your version was not an exploitation. No, I I'm saying, but people made was. money. I made money directing it. The producer made money. CBS made money on off of Marilyn. Yeah. So, but that's kicking around my brain these days. Yeah. Well, you know, I was actually going to ask you, Ellen had brought up the question, which is a good question, but I was actually going to ask you, given, you know, there was all this buzz about this movie and then it came out and we all saw it and I felt it was exploitative as well. And there's this one extreme that you kind of mentioned where, especially in TV at the time, they would say, oh, here's a, you know, here's a script about a woman's story. Let's see if Joyce will do it. And that's no good, obviously. But is there another side of that where, like, when we talk about, I, I really didn't think that the Marilyn Monroe in this new version was really real in any sense, you know, and do you think there are some stories like those that are written or experienced by women that maybe are better suited to being told by women? I don't know if there are, they aren't, but I'm just wondering. Say that again. Are what the last part? Are there some? Are there some stories like ones that are written by women or about women that are perhaps better told by women? Perhaps, but I have to. I only have one example. My husband, who's no longer alive, he wrote Smooth Talk, and I think he could do as fine a job as any woman about a woman. When he died, the New York Times called Laura Dern for a comment for his obituary. And she said, I'll paraphrase it, I couldn't believe that a 50-year-old man who's an MIT professor could tell me what I was feeling as a teenage girl. She said, but he did. Tom just was open. He just had the imagination and interest and sympathy. So I know that's a question that kicks, also kicks around. Are women better? At, but I don't like that division. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially considering that they sort of, you were put in this place where early on in TV, they would say, okay, here's the woman's story. Let's get the woman to direct it. And that's, that's tough to have to do. So what questions are awaiting us here? All right. Let's see what we've got. What was it like? We'll go way back. What was it like to the beginning growing up in Coney Island? What was it like? It was scary in a way. Uh, And I think I brought it on myself. I used to spend a lot of time where all those rides and amusement parks. um, It was a very prejudiced world. It was where I grew up, the time I grew up, it was all Italians and Jews. And hardly any black people. And if there were, they were cleaning houses, you know, and even, I hardly knew any, but I think it certainly affected me because I I spent every Saturday at the movies, uh, but I think a lot of people at that time, and, and they were double features, you know, you really, mama could get rid of you by sending you off to the movie on Saturday. <laughs> so all in all, I'm glad I grew up there. Do you go back ever? I haven't been back in years. No, but I'd like to. Yeah. It's now all Russian. Right down by Brighton Beach, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
All right, so here's a question. What was the most challenging part of the writing process for you? Oh gosh, of any writing process, creating a living characters. You know, in Joyce Carolos's short story, Where Are You Going, Where Are You Been, which is we based Moonstruck on, she was writing in a way an allegorical story. Uh, they're not, the characters aren't real. They, you have to create them. She, she did not, she had put lines about them. That to me is what great writing is. is these characters just are real to you. And did that, because you are a filmmaker and because you, you know how to create worlds, did that come pretty easily to you as you were writing the memoir and going back and telling these stories? I wish I, I, wish I had more dialogue in my memoir. I, when I, <laughs> I do like telling stories through dialogue. You're right, it's, it's from having worked on scripts for so many years. So was there a particular part of the writing process then that was most enjoyable for you that you really just loved doing? I have to back you up. I didn't love doing it, but I was interested in it. And I had nothing to draw on. I read a few books about how to write a memoir and what they weren't helpful. And I read other memoirs and they weren't helpful. So I just ignored it all and just plunged in. And I just kept adding and adding and adding things I remembered. And then huge amounts finally got cut out because. They were, once you start, when I start writing about somebody, then I find myself telling the whole story about that person. And it's not my story. It's, I just love telling their stories. So yeah, that was the hard part. But I had a really great editor at, at uh, City Lights, Elaine Katzenberger. Well, many memoirs are kind of by definition about the person writing them, but I had the very strong sense, and I don't know if this is true, it's just what I was kind of picking up, that you were really writing for the person who was reading it. I mean, is that accurate? Did you have any sort of reader in mind at any point no, I as didn't. you were writing? I did not. No. No. I think it's because when you... Yeah, no. No. When you start the book with the prologue and you talk about Alice Guy Blachet and you talk about Lois Weber and you talk about Ida Lupino, and I just thought, oh, she's giving us the book that she didn't have when she was a young woman. Yeah, and I kind of like that idea that yeah. young women can now, you know, we're not just young women, anybody who's creative can learn from you how to kick down doors and what doors to walk through that you've already kicked down for us. Well, the wonderful thing is when I directed that episode, few episodes for Law and Order and a few other shows, I was a rarity. And now, and since the Me Too movement, uh, in just in the last two or three years, it's gone from maybe 7% of, of directors in a season of women to 40%. It's just, it's also talking about explosion. It's wonderful. Yeah. Actually, great. Yeah. Did you imagine it would take this long or did you never even imagine it would happen? I didn't know that it would happen. I, I couldn't imagine. Yeah. That really, that really surprised me when I was reading about that. I was looking up those statistics for the end of my book. Uh, and I was shocked. I mean, I had a sense of it, 
but I didn't, I wasn't aware of how big a change it was. I'm thrilled. Yeah. 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 Well, we have you to thank to a huge degree. Um, and I know that we do need to wrap up pretty soon, but I just do have one more question. Are you working on anything new right now or will you be taking a well-earned break until after the book is released? I'm going to be doing another documentary in the spring. Yeah, that's nice to know that I have that, that will be there, yeah. Can you tell us anything about it or what it's about? Oh, I've been working, the last, the films I've described are going to Nicaragua uh, is for a group, a woman started this uh, nonprofit called By Kids, and, it, and it, she got a grant from Ford Foundation. Okay, to start this, to get basically seduce people like me to work for next to nothing, to mentor young kids to make movies about in their lives, but not just any kids. Kids who have big stories to tell, like climate change. When I talked about uh, and I will. She, it's her idea, and I jumped on it immediately. The films I've been doing have been so about such difficult subjects, and I said, I'm so, I would love to do something that's happy making. And she said, Ah, I know the thing. She said, In Baltimore, uh, a woman conductor, one of the first conductors of a national big symphony, started a program for uh, kids who, who don't have the means to learn to be musicians. And they, they're learning at school and after school. And it's also affected their math scores. I mean, anyway, I said, I love that subject. It's going to make me happy to do it. So that's what I'm looking forward to doing. Yeah. That sounds wonderful. And we'll all be looking forward to seeing it as soon as it comes out. on PBS. She's, she's a very, talk about a woman who just keeps pushing, Holly Carter. And she has, uh, yeah, she, she, when she's done five, produced five films, with people like me, uh, she, they go on PBS. It's great. So we're going to go into season four. She, talk yeah. about determination. I love that. I love that. I love that you've got this lined up. I can't wait for us to see it. And in the meantime, of course, everyone is going to read Lady Director and go to Criterion because all of your extraordinary films are on there and everyone should see all of them. Thank you so much for sharing so much. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This is great. I wish I could see you all and answer all your questions. Well, congratulations, Joyce Chopra. It was such an honor to have you with us tonight. Elizabeth Weitzman, so appreciate you doing the honors. You're such a great interviewer. It's been a pleasure through and through. Uh, everyone, we have posted links with which you may purchase the books. I've also posted links so you can learn more about California Film Institute. And I've also posted links to the Criterion channel. So please do check that out. Just some wonderful, wonderful stuff there. I mean, it kept me sane through the pandemic. So uh also want to remind everyone, you know, City Lights is open for business. We actually have a huge women's studies section and film section. Come on down. We also feature the books on our website, but, you know, come on down and browse our stacks. Uh, we miss you all. Tonight's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one our publishing program and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So take care, everyone. We hope to see you all again soon. Be well. Elizabeth, you're a wonderful interviewer. Thank you.
Oh, thank you so much. It couldn't have been easier to talk to you, Joyce. This was great. And I was so excited, as you know. I wish we could have answered. I love all these names here. I also see a few friends of mine, and I see my daughter. <laughs> well, we can still take some questions. I mean, yeah, we can. You know, if anybody wants to post something, you know. Well, there are 25 things in this chat thing below. We do have another question here, Joyce, which is how does your daughter feel about the book? She knows so much about my life that uh, she's a great advisor about what what to, what to include or not. And she's, when uh, I could just, she's never sat down to read it from beginning to end. So I will go and say, what do you think of this? Or if Elaine Katzenberger, the editor and publisher of City Lights, suggests I take something out, I, I said, I'll think about it. But then I go to Sarah, I say, what do you think? Should I do it? She said, yes. <laughs> so that's the final word. <laughs> yeah, she's got great judgment, I think. For me, she's got excellent judgment. And has, she, has she seen Joyce at 34? Because she certainly plays an important role in the film. Oh, yes, she has. What I, I, think about that? I, I, th I included something she wrote about it. She, I think she starts, I was, I'm born, I'm born, I, I can't, but basically I'm born over and over again. <laughs> I'm, I'm born in Russia. I'm born, <laughs> yes. And she's seen it. I don't think she's seen it for quite a while. Though. But she, it's normal to her. She was born with a movie made about, I mean, that's part of her life. Now everybody takes pictures of, of birth and what's going on in the first year and second and third. So there are people used to it. It was the first live birth on television. What was the response when the film came out? People saw it. Oh, very positive, really. Except I quoted in the book because I loved this. It was, on, it was in a movie theater playing with... Uh, a film about uh, I.F. Stone was an independent journalist and they paired the two documentaries together and I was outside sort of waiting and nobody knew who I was and sort of eavesdropping hoping I'd hear comments of people leaving the movie theater and one man came out and he said I want my money back I thought I was seeing a film about James Joyce and it's some ugly dame having a baby <laughs> <laughs> I, I was so happy with that <laughs> Funny. Yeah, it was a shock. I paid money to see a film about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is time to say good night. Well, it has been a wonderful night. Thank you, Peter, for hosting us too. Yeah. It was such a pleasure. Thank you both. Thank you. And Bye. thank you all in the audience. As always, you help complete the circle. Bye, Stacy. See you soon. Bye, Elizabeth. Bye. Bye. Have a great night. You too. And thank you all for being here. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com/events.